Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I'm joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Hey folks, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for joining us on another fun-filled episode, yes, of The Brian Nichols Show. And this week we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest, being that of Mr. Eric Larson, or shall I say Dr. Eric Larson. So Eric is a doctor over in Michigan uh, focusing on anesthesiology. And uh, today I had Eric join the show to discuss the issues that doctors are currently facing here in our current healthcare system and, and how really Obamacare didn't do what it was supposed to do to make the lives of doctors easier, and especially the ability for them to provide the level of care that they have come to expect, ranging from the shortages of medications that are in place due to the burdensome regulations, uh, the anti-kickback laws that are in place, and then also Eric goes into some detail as to what he would do uh, in his ideal world as a doctor to uh, to fix the situation, and uh, also, now this is the, uh, the fun part, a little behind-the-scenes sneak peek into the life and personality of the one and only Congressman Justin Amash. Now, Eric and, and Congressman Amash are actually good family friends, uh, ranging back from their uh, days in the liberty movement, starting with the campaign for Ron Paul. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity for you to get a little bit of a sneak peek as to who Justin Amash is as a person, uh, his ambitions, and really what drives him as a, uh, not a politician so much, but as a true liberty-loving warrior. And yes, there are rumors, of course, right now with Justin considering his uh, dipping his toe into the waters as a uh, libertarian. And uh, that would definitely be interesting uh, when considering Justin's uh, interest in running potentially, very big potentially, for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. So with that, folks, please, if you enjoyed today's episode, share with family and friends. And as always, please uh, take a second and give us a rate and review over on iTunes. Um, that's how we are able to get up in the rankings. So when people are searching for podcasts, the Brian Nichols show pops up there as one of the top shows that they can go ahead and enjoy. Um, and as always, follow me over on social media and on Facebook and Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. So uh, with that, folks, thank you for, for stopping by today for the Brian Nichols show. And uh, yeah, without further ado, on to the show, Eric Larson here on the Brian Nichols show. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I was very uh, appreciative of you reaching out to me and, and expressing interest to come on my show because not often do we have people with, uh, you know, the MD next to their name to talk about these issues, um, being that of healthcare. Uh, so having someone who not only is is educated on it, but lives it on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, what better? Uh, so, so with that... Obviously, uh, you know, I, I kind of spoiled that you're a doctor, so maybe you could introduce yourself a little bit more in-depth as to uh, a doctor of, and uh, kind of explain uh, not only your professional career, but also personal endeavors as a, a libertarian, um, but also we'll, uh, we'll discuss more along the lines of how that has kind of morphed into your professional career as well. Sure. Uh, big question. I guess we'll start by the background politically, so how I got involved in libertarian politics. Uh, I initially sort of introduced it, I suppose you could say, in college at the University of Michigan, which is an odd place for people to get introduced to libertarian politics. It's a pretty left wing, as are most colleges, but especially back back then. Um, I I saw some things about objectivism and Ayn Rand, and so I read, I think, Atlas Shrugged, I, and then I worked on a, um, a counterculture paper, <laughs> I guess you call, up to the Daily uh, newspaper there, which was conservative slash libertarian, met some libertarians there. And became 
uh, at least found that the libertarian philosophy and sort of the, the way of looking at politics made sense to me. It sort of tied together what I'd already sort of thought. I came, to, I guess you'd say, sort of traditionally Republican family. Um, but there wasn't a lot of deep thinking on politics just outside of boy taxes are terrible and you know, those sorts of things. Um, and so uh, then I went to uh, the Libertarian National Convention because it was that hard to get a delegate spot in the Libertarian Party. Uh, we were nominated Harry Brown. And then I went to medical school. And so when I was in medical school and residency training for eight years out of the University of Iowa, I didn't really spend much time in libertarian politics. I was sort of aware of the people in Iowa, but I was just busy doing you just you're just immersed in medicine. You really don't have an opportunity to express yourself politically much outside of just annoying people, you know, between cases and things like that. Uh, so I finished my anesthesia residency. So I'm an anesthesiologist. I brought my wife back from Iowa. She's a pediatrician. We met at medical school in Iowa. And once I got back to Michigan, I uh, got involved in the Libertarian Party here in Michigan, and I was uh, a number of positions within the, the local party and also the state party. I ran for statewide office a couple times for uh, region of the University of Michigan, and then the Ron Paul thing happened in 2007. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a long story in some ways, but I, I essentially ended up meeting his brother. He was, happened to be the assistant pastor at my church as well, and so I became sort of close to the Paul family. Uh, I was invited to a family reunion and got to know him really well. Uh, and uh, just, you know, the, the blessings of life sometimes, how things sort of work out for you. And then, um, and then I, and then once he got involved, then I met my friend, Justin Amash and he ran for the state house and we, we since become very good friends and sort of, I left the Libertarian party in ways uh, in part, I guess, to get involved with, the Republican Party just to, to help to help Justin uh, both in the state house and then later in Congress. Mm-hmm. And um, recently in December, I rejoined the Libertarian Party as you know I jumped on the bandwagon with all the people who are sort of doing it. I in the spring of last year, uh, I guess it was April, I launched my own podcast called The Paradox, which is P A R A D O C S, which is uh, uh, where I basically interview another physician and we talk about medicine and we talk about various aspects. So it's a better it's a it's not just for people who are in medicine, like physicians, uh, but it's a way for physicians to better understand the problems that they face in medicine because a lot of things are very complicated. And, and right. even though you're living it, you don't really sit down and figure out the, the root cause of what's happening. It, cause uh, it's happening often, so fast, essentially. Like there's no chance for you to really take a step back and acknowledge what's happening because it's just, it's so fast paced. And obviously in medicine, that's even more so. Right. It's sort of like if you're standing I don't know if it's a good analogy, but if you're standing in a, a, the uh, in in your camping in a forest, and suddenly you're engulfed in flames, uh, you all you know is there's a fire, and you're trying to run from it. You don't look to see what the source of the fire was, and you know how it started, and why it was why you're at risk for being you know incinerated. And so I think in oftentimes in any sort of industry, people just suddenly find themselves in situations where they can't explain. And so our purpose, or my purpose, I guess, is to try and help physicians understand that, and then likewise to help. People who aren't in medicine, either lay the lay public or people who are maybe you know physical therapists or other peripherally related medicine, to understand what physicians are facing and the problems that they're they're trying to overcome, their solutions they find, and uh, and that's you know we're all patients on some level at some point in our lives, and so it's I think interesting for people who are who want to just kind of know what's going on. Yeah, no, for sure. And and one thing I was very excited about in terms of having you on is because you're going to be able to discuss exactly what it is that doctors face on that day-to-day basis. Um, so so to start off, first and foremost, your show, I love the, the little catch line, occasionally serious, usually lighthearted, and accidentally informative. So let's uh, take that and segue into a uh, informative discussion, if you will, about maybe the, the top issues that you you as a doctor and, and those also within the medicine field are experiencing on, on a day-to-day basis. What would you say, um, I guess, are the top three things that doctors are currently facing as a challenge that maybe is more institutionalized because of the structure of the regulations and such on healthcare that exists today? Well, that's actually a tough question to answer to try and figure out what the three are, but I will give you three, I'll give you one that's, I'll give you a couple ones that are interesting that are, um, that lots of physicians face that are ones that they don't understand oftentimes and that patients don't even know are occurring oftentimes either. So, uh, one of them is drug shortages. And I think, you know, we're all familiar with the problems of the pharmaceutical delivery system in this country, the expense of it, um, uh, the, you know, the, 
the approval process through the FDA, and I've had a number of episodes on this, but the one I think is very interesting is the fact that there's a shortage of medications all the time. And since I started my training in 2000, uh, I finished in 2004, and then I came to private practice in Grand Rapids, uh, where I've been practicing privately with a large anesthesia group here. Uh, the the problem with with generic medications and their um, their availability has been getting worse every year, and this is something that if you're if you talk to a physician who's administering medicines, whether this is uh, chemotherapeutic agents, if you talk to oncologists, or people who are on the front lines like anesthesiologists or um, maybe someone in the ER, uh, a lot of generic medicines there's there are chronic shortages, and not just shortages like two weeks. We're talking a shortage of like seven, eight, nine months, sometimes a year, where common medicines like pain medications, say morphine or dilaudid, uh, or common anesthetic agents like propofol, uh, local anesthetics, everything, <laughs> and blood pressure medications. And so I feel that acutely when I'm in uh, surgery, when I'm trying to administer medicines to try and treat someone, either postoperatively, you know, they have pain, I'm trying to treat it their pain, and suddenly I don't have any medicines to give them. And this causes a lot of, I mean, it's clearly it's an obvious what the problem is, but what the root cause of it is is really interesting because it actually goes back to the fact that we have, not surprisingly, a lot of government regulation which led to these middlemen being created in healthcare and uh, that control the pharmaceuticals and the purchasing of all the products that are used, distributed and used in hospitals and pharmacies in the country. Uh, you might have heard about them called pharmacy benefit managers. It's kind of complicated. Uh, PBMs. There's also group purchasing organizations. Those are GPOs. And so they're basically organizations that were constructed by hospitals or by pharmac pharmacies to, or actually by the government in some ways for Medicare and Medicaid to try and save money, to try and find ways of bulk purchasing medications in order to find efficiencies in cost, which makes sense, right? I mean, I think most people would say, you know, you pool together a lot of small hospitals so they can have a bigger purchasing price and they can get they can negotiate better rates. And that's, you know, if you're in a capitalism, I mean, that's certainly the, those sorts of people are very important in delivering products. Um, how, however, the problem is, is that because of the difficulties with regulations in developing medications and and there's also uh, what happened is that they're basically the the government has made it so that now they can have these kickbacks and rebates that they provide to the um, to the pharmaceutical industry. So basic, so I, the way to, to put it quickly is that to enter a drug into the formulary so that it can be distributed to, to the hospitals, and about 90% of medicines are, and if you want to get to the hospital, 90% of them have, are, if you want to get to the hospitals, 90% of the hospitals are, go through these organizations who mm -hmm. so have to be part of these organizations. You have to pay money into this to get, to get on the formulary. Well, it's expensive and you're selling generic medications. And so what happens is, is that now you can no longer produce one medicine. You have to produce five, now 10, soon 20 medications before you even can economically make it viable to have, mm -hmm. uh, to have medicines. Right. So that's going to make lar ever larger or organizations or companies that have to produce these medications. And so the one-time player who can make one medicine really cheaply can't compete and they can't get in because they're effectively shut out of this, this system. And so what happens is now something happens within, let's say a hurricane occurs or, um, you know, there's a fire in a plant or the FDA shuts down one plant. Well, they're only, instead of having the slack in the system that you'd have any other sort of product, you don't have, you have no slack in the system. And so now you have two manufacturers that may be making a medication. One of them closes down and now there's a, you can imagine there's tremendous shortages all over the country. And if it's shut right. down for like nine months to get retrofit a plant or whatever, now no one has that medicine. So you'll see like IV fluids suddenly they're short. <laughs> I mean there's – when the hurricanes rip through Puerto Rico because a lot of the products are made in Puerto Rico for tax reasons. So that's one thing that happens and that's due to government regulations. It's due to uh, anti-kickback laws that are that are given safe harbor for this pharmacy benefit managers. And they basically make their money by – I mean through uh, kickbacks essentially. They call it rebates but the rebates never go back to anybody but themselves. <laughs> and so, Convenient. And so – and so actually I just had a doc, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, but they they actually get their money from the rebate that is offered by the manufacturer. So if you're making, say, a medicine for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and it costs $1,000, your chart, your list price is $1,000 and you, you provide a 50% uh, 
rebate so that the pharmacy benefit manager only pays $500, they actually take the other $500 and they just take that in as a profit. They don't actually dispense, they don't even carry that on to the people who contract with them, the hospitals and the pharmacies huh. or the patients, or the insurance companies essentially oftentimes. And so, and so for them, actually their profit margin is entirely determined on the list price. So if your list price is $10, let's say you make a drug really cheap, you enter it cheaply in the market, they have no interest in carrying that drug on their formulary because you can offer a 50% discount, but it gives them $5. They'd much rather have the medications that are cost $1,000 or even maybe $10,000 because they get all that rebate back because mm-hmm. they will demand that rebate. It's very mm-hmm. weird. Uh, and then that's they say, well, this is just what the, you know, this, you look at the list price, I'm giving you a 50% discount when they talk to, or they talk to the insurance companies and, and so insurance companies sign on and they, you know, they don't have a choice. Recently, insurance companies realized they're getting ripped off, and so they've started buying them out. So you'll start seeing mergers between these pharmacy benefit managers like CVS with Aetna. Uh, okay, and, yep. And so that's why these things are happening because the insurance companies are like, well, we're going to get our cut in this. And so instead of getting ripped off by the pharmacy, we're just going to take that <laughs> money back. <laughs> but essentially, uh, this goes to the main problem with the whole system in, in healthcare, essentially, is that there's it's a, a disconnect between the people who – receive the products or sell them and the people who pay for it, right? In most markets, you're going to have the people who are buying the product are the ones paying for it. And the people who are getting the money for it are the ones who are dealing directly with the customers. And so in this country, most healthcare is, is delivered through a third party payer system, whether that is a commercial payer, like your insurance company, uh, or whether that's the government payer, like Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, so, so what, of course that happens is you, you have a problem with a, a recognition of where scarcity really exists, right? So you have you have people who don't recognize that, you know, there's the cost of medicine, because you you most people outside of the last couple of years for the last couple of years really had no idea how much any medication cost. They would never shop around to pharmacies. And I entirely guilty of this as are you know, as most people are. Because you never had to really, right? <laughs> right. You're like, well, it's more convenient to get all my medications at Walgreens than to try and go to six different pharmacies because exactly, they all yeah. have different prices. But you will find when you have like an HSA, for instance, that suddenly the the price difference is tremendous between one pharmacy and the next. And there's no rhyme or reason to which one has a better price. And so the better price might be at Walgreens and then the next time it's at CVS or whatever. And um, so anyway, so because you lack those price signals, you lack people who recognize that there's a cost to anything. And so they tend to overuse or uh, over demand um, services or medications. You have people who are prescribing these things and they actually oftentimes are compensated based on how much they they recommend is used. And then you have people who are paying for it, which are the, you know, and then so there's, it's very difficult to try and control costs. If in fact, you couldn't probably design a better system to cause in, inflation in the, in, pro, in products and services than the way it's set up right now. And so hmm. most of the solutions that you see are not addressing that fundamental problem, because if you, as long as you have someone who is paying for it, who has no direct stake in, um, in the actual outcome or the the healthcare that's being delivered, they're not going to they're not going to be able to adequately figure out what sort of uh, you know things need to be mm-hmm. done. Yeah, it, well, it's just like the um, what the heck are they called? People get injured and then they can't get insurance again. Uh, pre-existing conditions. Condition. There we go. I, yeah, sure. It's like my brain just literally turned off yeah, for yeah, five sure. seconds. Um, but no, with with pre-existing conditions, uh, that's one of the main things there is that with pre-existing conditions. People going on to insurance, it's no longer insurance. You're not insuring on something happening. You're trying to cover something that already happened, which it's not insurance at all in that case. So I think that that kind of even right there coincides with what you were just referring to. Right. I mean, I I, I think uh, the, the hard thing is that we deliver so much with insurance, which is not, like you said, it's not really insurance at some point. At some point, yeah, you're, you're – you can't continue insuring a car if it's already if it's already got a bad transmission. I mean, no one's going to say, "Oh yeah, you can repair it." Right? It, and so that's that's the problem. Where you can't insure a house that's already in fire. Right? You for all these sort of analogies. Um, but what's when I started the show last April, I had um, I would say a fairly pessimistic sort of view of things. I mean, you look at the the system and it's really totally messed up. I mean, we we passed Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, in when it was twenty. 08 or 2009 or something like that. And things haven't gotten any better. In fact, they're worse. But it's not like if you got rid of it, the system was great before because that's why there was so much, <laughs> there's so many people excited about if the prospect of a, uh, the Affordable Care Act. Right. Um, 
because there was it was a pro the system is just broken and it's because i think fundamentally it is because you have this third party system and so that's why it, it's really encouraging that i've done the show is that i found physicians and um, people who are finding ways to to solve these problems despite every effort by the system to stop them i mean i think delivering healthcare cheaply high quality and actually probably better than they're getting now and for a, a tenth or less of the cost. Uh, so I think it's really, it's sort of like, I I think it's a little bit like homeschooling where people recognize there's a problem with their kids' education and they just when decided just to just to do it themselves or to find ways, way solutions rather than waiting for the government or some sort of legislative fix. And mm-hmm. and then at some point it becomes so popular that people are like, oh, well, I guess we had to stop this. And like, no, you can't stop it now because you're going to have you know people with pitchforks and, and, and torches at your state capital if you're going to try and shut these things down. So th- these mm-hmm. people who are coming with solutions, I think it's been really uh, encouraging to me that – and the best thing too is that they're not ideologically like libertarians or conservatives or liberals. They're people who just recognize there's a problem and they're just going right. and fixing it. It turns out they're probably libertarian-like solutions, you'd say, market-based solutions, uh, whether they uh, think that's what they're doing or not. I, I mean I know we talked to them <laughs> who are not – like big fans of the market, but that's what they're doing. And so Isn't that I, ironic? It's so great because like they don't even realize that even though it's going against their entire belief system that they already have, you know, established in their minds, they're actually living the very lifestyle that they likely would, would not be in favor of. I think that speaks to the value and, and truly the merits of libertarianism. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, if you look at the, the gig economy or something like that, you have all these millennials and people who are finding solutions to problems like not being able to get find ways to get around town. So you have developed Uber and Lyft. Uber, and these, yeah, exactly. Right. And or I don't have a place to stay and I don't care if it's a four star hotel or whatever. I can just stay at someone's couch. Well, now there's a way to do that. Right. Airbnb. And so who are not ideally have any reason to do these sorts of things. They recognize that it's a great thing. And if you talk to them, they're probably in favor of all sorts of government programs and spending. But they have see the they see the value in, in this market and and it's I think maybe just to the the state that human beings we we're social and we trade and we have we naturally have some sort of markets you know whether the rudimentary or real complicated uh, and so it's a beautiful thing I think you know that's I don't care how you vote as much as long as long as you allow people to flourish and uh, to innovate and to try and find ways to solve problems. So let's um let's let's kind of go back towards the. The insurance slash, um, you know, the the actual care side of things, because right. one of the big things I see a lot of people, you know, not even necessarily political people, it's just people who are trying to diagnose what's wrong in society. They look at the overall quality of healthcare. They they think the the quality has gone down immensely, and then with that, their their expenses, you know, their premiums, their copays, it's all skyrocketed, and the the big target seems to have been placed on the drug companies, number one, but also number two, the insurance companies. So I guess to those people who are just looking for the, the, the person to blame, what would you say, where, where are their merits in their arguments and where um, are they maybe a little misguided? And, and to those, mis, uh, those people who are misguided, where do you think you can help point them in the right direction? Well, like everything, I think it's nuanced and I think there's truth in both sides. And so I think I think from the standpoint of mo- of the – let's just go start with the, the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies. They are limited in many ways in sort of how they can go about uh, developing new medications and by the FDA. Uh, and so one of the things that the FDA does is it now forces you to test for efficacy. And efficacy means how effective a medication is. So in the past, I think most people think of the FDA as testing to make sure drugs are safe. That you're not going to take a right. medication that's going to kill you or cause um, birth defects like uh, uh, thalidomide is sort of the classic example from the 1970s where women were taking a medication to try and help with uh, early in pregnancy with nausea. And so they're taking thalidomide, which worked great, but it, it would cause some birth defects. And so the FDA was you know, chartered to take care – to prevent that. But they also at the same time entered in and started forcing efficacy. Well, the difference is that to prove a medication is safe is actually not that ex- not as expensive. The, the size of your studies can be much, much smaller. They're much quicker. 
if you try and prove some medication is effective, um, now your studies are very long. They take years. You have to have tre tremendous amounts of patients involved, and you have to have all sorts of different types of patients, like you know, men and women and different sec uh, different races and different ages and and uh, you know different parts of the country or whatever. You got to try and get a feel that it's going to be effective everywhere. And what that does is it drives drives up the cost of medicines so much. And so if you just got rid of that little bit, it'd make medications cheaper to bring to market. And then the price of drugs continues to go up because um, because the, we're not allowed to buy our pharmaceuticals from outside the country for the most part. And so if other countries have price caps on how much medicines cost, and so that cost is effectively borne by American citizens because you're not allowed to get your medicines where it's you're not allowed to charge more. Uh, if we could, if we allowed to buy the drugs from anywhere, it lower the cost of price of medicines for us here in this country anyway, because now they would actually have to pay more on the other parts of the you know, other parts of the world, uh, or they would just not have access to the medicans medication. So they'd say, "Well, we're not going to pay this much." Like, well, then we're not. You're not going to ever have that medication. Mm -hmm. uh, so it it would lower the price, and that's somewhat the medical the pharmaceutical companies want that. So in that way, they're sort of to blame. And what I mentioned, the pharmacy benefit managers, that sort of goes with the pharmaceutical companies. They understand how that works as well. And so that's a way for them to keep other competitors out of the market. When it comes to insurance, they also have, there's, they are somewhat at fault. Uh, and you know, I think you could put some blame too with the, the government and just the way that, that, uh, that the whole system began where you couldn't raise wages, but you could provide benefits. Uh, and so that's why, health insurance was suddenly offered to make to, to entice workers to work for you as a company. And so that just sort of became ingrained in, in society that now your employer is the one who provides your insurance. And that's caused all sorts of problems because if you try and buy insurance, if you're self-employed and you're trying to buy insurance outside your employment, now you're paying after tax dollars and as opposed to pre-tax dollars. And so it becomes very expensive and that just causes the entire third party system with all the, things you'd expect, right? I mean, it's the same, it, it's just, it, the outcome is exactly what you'd expect to be where you, it, that price are ever escalating. And then the, to control the cost, they try and do everything they can, co-pays, raise your deductibles, uh, because as they pass insurance or as the ACA effectively did by removing, uh, by having community ratings where you have now, as opposed to, we're going to look at how expensive your family is based on their demographics or how much they've used insurance in the past. Now we're going to say your insurance is going to be the same no matter where you are within some defined community like a metropolitan area or something like that. And so basically the healthy people are going to pay more for their insurance in order to subsidize the health care for the sick people. Um, and whether you think that's a just system or not, that's effectively what's happened. And so it it raises up the cost of health care. And then you have people who decline to get health care because they can't afford it. Or I should say health insurance, not health care, health insurance. Uh, you know, or, or they just kind of go piecemeal, they go to the ER or whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't know what's, what the just way of doing, of delivering it, but I think the, the insurance market and the way of delivering most of our healthcare through insurance is, is a broken system. And that's why the people I've talked to who are now finding ways to get around that system cheaply has been real interesting. And I think has been, I think is revolutionary. I was going to ask the question. So I, I was listening to, I think it was a uh, Ben Shapiro with, I think it was Andrew Yang. He was discussing healthcare. It, it may have been a different <laughs> conversation, which was interesting just to, to listen yeah, because you have sure. such two very different ways of approaching the healthcare system. And I think it was during this interview where Ben basically said, you know, the, the problem that I see is that <clears throat> it's not so much that it's, it's, you know, the free market system or the government system is that again, like you're mentioning, we have this hybrid you know system where it, it's really the mix that's causing the problems. And, and as you mentioned, basically the, the people putting into the insurance subsidizing the rest. So I, I know the way you'd be going towards, I'm going to assume is more of the free market approach, but to those yeah. people who are saying, and we're obviously seeing millions of them saying Medicare for all is going to be the way of, of the, the healthcare system in the United States just for it to survive to those folks, where would you say that they are, uh, are misguided and maybe can help guide them back towards uh, the, the free market approach based on your experience in the, uh, the medical field? So I'll, the first thing, if someone says Medicare for all, I want you to ask them, if they know if, if they've ever seen a commercial on finding insurance for people who are in Medicare, 
and I'm sure everyone said, oh yeah, Medicare plus and part D coverage. And yeah, so there, there's supplemental insurance for Medicare because Medicare doesn't cover everything because Medicare doesn't, you know, provide what you need oftentimes. And so to those people, I, I always find it funny when people say Medicare for all, like it's like it covers everything. It doesn't. And so I, I think people need to really rethink what they think it really is because if they, they realize that, yeah, you're buying insurance and you get Medicare. I mean, you're, I don't think they'd be as excited about the prospect of, of having it. Um, but I think the example I'll use is in the thing that I've really become more familiar with since I've started the products and is becoming much more popular uh, in the last two to three years, really. It's called direct primary care. Uh, I think everyone knows there's a primary care shortage or there's it's hard to get in to see primary care. When you see them, you're like you get five minutes with a doctor they, it may, if you even see a doctor, you oftentimes see nurse practitioners, or PAs, and see, but you're still paying the doctor price. Um, and it's not really care that people find satisfying. Uh, and so what a number of physicians have said is that we're just done running this rat race of trying to provide all these, doing the coding and doing all this, the tremendous amount of bureaucracy that goes with billing and coding and everything that to, for insurance or, you know, government payers. And we're just going to go out on our own, like a private practice. And we're just going to have a membership-based care care model. So you have these physicians now who are doing direct primary care. They're mostly family physicians or interim internists, but there are some OBGYN doing it now. There are some pediatricians doing this, where you're paying fifty dollars per month per patient to get twenty-four-seven access to a physician. You can go in and see the physician as many times as you want. They oftentimes get discounted medications for you. Uh, they get discounted te- laboratory tests, discounted radiology tests. They find all these sort of deals. It doesn't cover your hospital stuff or you go for surgery or things like that. But you now have, you're now spending $600 a year for access to a physician that you never had. I mean, you don't have anywhere close to that, but now I don't know what your insurance is like, but I know mine was like that. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you really don't ever get to see anybody. Um, and so now you can have, you can sit down and you go in for like an hour because these docs, they have like you know, your new patient, you sit in for an hour and they get to know everything about you. And the ones who just dis- distribute the medicine, they just charge you oftentimes just the um, wholesale price for the medications. So if you're on a three or four medicines, you're probably saving 10, 15, 20, $30 a month. Now your $50 a month membership fee only costs you about 20 bucks. Hmm. Uh, you're getting laboratory tests where, yeah, now you're, you're getting labs through your insurance. You're paying the copay of 20, $30 or whatever. Now you're going in and like I had two labs done the other day because I just switched to DPC doc and it cost me like seven bucks um, for cholesterol and a CBC um, or a PSA actually. And, and uh, MRIs for like 200 bucks, right? <laughs> That's usually less than what people pay for the co-pays oftentimes. And so, and it, you have to pay your full deductible first, right? Before you even get to that discounted rate. Right, so exactly. You're, you're spending couple thousand dollars a month on premiums plus you'd have to spend eight thousand five thousand ten thousand dollars in your deductible so your healthcare costs are huge you're like thirty thousand dollars a year for a family four or something like that and now this aspect you still need insurance for catastrophic coverage but now you can get your primary care for maybe you know 150 bucks a, a month for a family four or something like that that's i mean that's a no-brainer but it's only because the system is so broken and so expensive that now this is a very viable option and one that People think it's a deal. I mean, if you look how much you spend in gym membership or something or cable, oh yeah, less than that, and and the amount of value you're getting from that is probably a lot more. But it's really cool because you're having people who are using the market, and I've talked to a number of these docs. They are not all like, in fact, maybe one of them is libertarian, but most of them are not. They're they're just seeing an opportunity, they, and they recognize that it's a great way to practice medicine. I mean. Docs would much rather have a patient panel of 500 people rather than 2,000. You don't know the 2,000 very well. So I can sit down and spend as much time as I need with, you know, someone. I can respond through text and things like that, take care of your problems. And I'm providing probably better care and uh, I have a better personal relationship, which is a huge professional satisfier for physicians. I mean, that's that's what drives us into medicine um, is is that, that relationship you have with your patients. And so for that, I, those are the people who I think I, they've solved that problem without even meaning to in some ways, you know, using market <laughs> forces. But these are the cool things that are happening that people are finding ways around the, the system that I think are going to radically change healthcare and are going to force system to change and reset even whether it likes it or not. I think that's these are things that are going to happen. <laughs> it's refreshing to hear because everything else has been like doom and gloom, it seems it's like. It's not across. all doom and gloom. I felt that way two years ago, but I've talked to enough docs 
and people who are doing things like freestanding surgery centers where they have full price transparency. They're charging like one quarter what they're getting to the hospital across the street, the large healthcare system, and they're making good money doing this. And so they're not professionally, they're not personally suffering, but they're just getting rid of all the other, it, the amount of administrative cost that goes in. <laughs> It's tremendous, right? And it's not providing real value for patients or the providers, the you know, physicians. It's just it's it's just extra bureaucracy that doesn't need to be there. I mean, there are certain sufficiencies in large corporations, but these are not normal corporations. They don't have normal. Um, it's just it's not your normal sort of business. And so it's it's really kind of neat seeing this innovation at the you know at its ground level. And it's I and it's I think it's going to really radically transform things. And I'm not I'm not as worried about Medicare for all these other sort of things because I think these things when people see this they're going to recognize the value even if they're in the regular system. I talked to a CEO from Kaiser Permanente real quickly, and he said and I told him about it because he's talking about all the usual sort of thing. Yeah, you know, we got to have more regulation, got to do all this, that, and the other thing, which is what I'd expect from some guy who was the head of you know the biggest physician organization in the country and you know number one with the I mean they're the way they operate is exactly the way you think of traditional medicine. And I explained this, and he's like, "Oh, that sounds like a, interesting, but you have a means you can afford this sort of thing." I said, "Well, it's only fifty bucks a month, you know." And over half my doc's patients are immigrants; they don't have any health care, and so for them, it's you know, it's great. And he's like, "Well, that's fantastic." I mean, he immediately saw the value of that, and it doesn't matter what your politics are; you explain the system to people, and they get excited about it. And I think that's the power of of markets and innovation that people will recognize immediately how it helps them. And it doesn't matter what their politics are. They're going to latch on to those sorts of solutions. Well, let's leave the healthcare discussion at the the happy note we left it at because I want people <laughs> to walk away feeling the optimism leaving from this episode. And speaking of optimism, um, for those folks within the libertarian movement, I know there's a lot of excitement at the prospects of uh, one potential geo, or I'm sorry, one potential libertarian party presidential candidate in Justin Amash. Now, I'm not going to put you in the spot and ask you what he's going to do. That would not be fair. But... I do want to know maybe a little bit of insight as to who Justin Amash is, the man. You have the chance to know him in real life, which I know for everybody, everybody libertarian listening right now, and they heard that you're friends with Justin Amash and you've been invited to the Paul's reunion, like that, they're, they're, all their, their their jealousy meters are you know, bursting through the roof. So first and foremost, maybe explain a little bit more as to your, your friendship there with, with Congressman Amash, um, his family, and then also maybe a little bit in, insight into what makes him uh, who he is and kind of what drives him as a person. Um, so I I met Justin, like I said, right before he ran for state house in February of 2008. Um, I sat down with him and his friend and and just we just talked about politics and what we're interested in because I was like, you know, Ron Paul's a great guy. I wish you'd, we'd been able to sort of connect before to to get involved in this campaign here in Michigan because it was back with meetups sort of back then. But anyway, we I came away from I came home to my wife. I said, if that guy is half of what he says he's going to do, that <laughs> I am, I'm going to be thrilled. And immediately I thought, well, this guarantees that he'll lose <laughs> because <laughs> no one I like who has politics who I like ever comes close to being successful. Spoken and so like, I, a, like a true libertarian right there. Right, absolutely, <laughs> right? I mean, you say you're libertarian. When I was when I was in college, you say libertarian. People would, you know, there's like tumbleweeds going by. No, no one. <laughs> it, you are all alone, generally speaking. So that in for that, it has really changed significantly uh, now when I was in college. But uh, so anyway, so. I helped with his campaign a little bit. He got he beat an, an not an incumbent, but the wife's the incumbent's wife, <laughs> and uh, he defeated her, which surprised everyone within the established part of the party. Here, he's never part of the party. Uh, he's always considered himself a Republican, but he never was like people always think in the Republican Party, especially and probably even the Democrat Party. I'm guessing is that you have to sort of work your way up, you know, yep. and do this, that, the other thing for the party, pay and your then dues, you get your time, oh, yes. yeah, yep. pay your dues, right? Well, he just decided to run, and they that really irritated them, especially in the sort of <laughs> um, this part of this the state, this part of the Republican Party is very traditional and um, very much, I shouldn't say country club, but it's it definitely it's it's long sort of entrenched. I mean, this is where Jerry Ford came out of. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so then he decided to run for. Uh, he started posting everything on Facebook because he got bored on the House floor. And I think that a couple stories were really interesting to me. One is that the the, uh, the RV people came. Uh, at, if you remember bad economy, 08, 09, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the RV companies were worried that they're going out of business. They couldn't sell any RVs cause no one, you know, was spending disposable income. And so they came and said, Hey, we want to, we want to regulate our industry. Is that okay to the state legislature? And they said, well, what do you want to do? It's, well, we want to separate the state into different regions. And then if someone wants to open a new, uh, dealership, they just have to get permission from the, the region. And so 
well, not surprisingly, the people who sit in the regions are the current RB dealers. So it's <laughs> unlikely that they're Funny. going to ever say, yeah, it's okay. Right. And this bill passed like 108 to two in the state legislature or something like that, uh, or maybe 106 to four. And, and Justin was telling me, he's like, I stood up in the caucus. I, he said, I went to one of the policy analysts because the Republicans were, you know, in the Republican party there. And like, what did you guys do the analysis with consumers and stuff like that? And they said, Oh, we never even talked to consumers. We just talked to the RV people. So there was like a total lack of recognition of anything that, that of like the market, right? Like, right. like how this would turn out. And of course, everyone in the state legislature except Justin got a couple hundred dollars from the, um, from the RV industry oh, for their, nice. their lobby. <laughs> it's actually amazing that you can get that sort of thing done for only a couple hundred bucks a piece, right? Uh, the other story is that he was the only person probably who read all the bills uh, before they were voting on them. This, found, this sounds unbelievable. It sounds impossible. Uh, but it's the case because uh, most legislators just look to see what the committee vote was. If it was unanimous or almost unanimous or like their party <laughs> voted for it, then they would just support it if it's their party. Wow. They rarely read it. Uh, but you you recognize this when you look at how the U.S. Congress operates. Same thing, right? I mean, these guys are voting on things and they don't realize, you know, you vote on it and you find out what's in the bill after you vote on it. Uh, the classic Nancy Pelosi line. But that is the way they generally operate. And so actually he was teased oftentimes by these reps, these his colleagues, the Republicans, but they'd say, hey, uh, do you mind if we have your little cheat sheet? Because he'd write a sheet, you know, like if this amendment's passed, then I would vote yes or no, whatever. And so they'd actually borrow it. So he got a lot of people who come along with him on his votes. Uh, so he built a decent contingency and then decided to run for Congress. And my wife and I said, you're crazy. And he said, eh, I think I win. And he won. The, the guy who's – they come and dropped out two days later or announced his <laughs> retirement two days later. And then it was, you know, we're on. And then he's been in Congress since. Um, and over the years, we've gotten to know each other. I, um Great guy. I mean, he's very honest. Uh, and the one thing that was interesting about him, and I feel like it when I talked to Ron Paul and his brothers at the family reunion, I don't mean to like name drop, <laughs> but but oh. but, it, but I I was talking to the nurse who was uh, Ron Paul's nurse, and she said the interesting thing about Ron Paul. I remember when he ran for Congress in 1976 or something like that. I can't remember exactly when it was, but she was she gave him his first campaign contribution, and she said he wrote in the back, you know, I'm gonna, I'm the things he's stated for. Constitutional limited government, gold standard, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And she said it's exactly the same today, you know, this is back in 2012 or something when he does, that it was back in 76. And the motivation for Justin is exactly the same now as it was for him when he first got involved. And I think if you're, so he doesn't care about the job in the sense that he doesn't, he's not there for, to hold a position. And I know lots of people think, oh, he should not run for this or that or the other because he might lose. He doesn't care because his intention, this is back when we talked about before he was running for state house, he said, my goal is to get as big a platform as I can to push the, the, the principles of liberty and liber the libertarian politics that I can, wherever I can do that. That's all I care about. Um, and that's how he's operated since. I mean, I think he moved, ran for Congress. He thought it's a better platform. It's a better way to get my ideas out to more people and to influence inf influence more and to spread the message. And that's his motivation. I mean, that he takes care of his family and he's a you know, good family man, whatever. But politically, what motivates him is the message. It is to try and push it. He does not care about the job in the sense that um, it, it's a vehicle, right? It's not it's not he does the paycheck is not what what motivates him, which is not what you can say about most people. Most people <laughs> like the job, but they like the fact that it's going to give them a paycheck later. Um, and so I, I think, for me, for someone looking for a person to support in uh, in politics, uh, I would trust him entirely in in his analysis of things. I mean, I think he's really smart. He I think he has a real good grasp of libertarian politics. However, whatever he decides to do in the future, whether that's running for president in whatever party or whatever he decides to do, run for Senate or governor, um, he's his his focus, again, is just to get the bigger the biggest platform he can to make the biggest impact he can. And that's something that I support. I support him as a friend and I support him. I donate to his campaign as well. But that's, I think, what should excite people, because that's really what gets him excited. And and, and <laughs> he's an eternal optimist. He he truly believes that he can get these things fixed. Uh, even when I look at it, like you'd never get this FISA, you know, bill passed or whatever. And he almost did. Right. He almost yeah, yeah. shut down. So 
I think those and and the other thing is I think he was instrumental when Obama was going to launch uh, a war in Syria. He started holding town halls. He hosts zillions of town halls anyway, way more than most congress. And he just actually just it's all Q and A for the most part. Uh, and he talks to everyone, calls on everybody, and that's how he operates. He's he's not afraid to talk to anyone about anything. Uh, but he, I think he was one of the ones who was instrumental in preventing that us from going to war in Syria because he started that conversation in Grand Rapids. CBS was here, you know, talking to these town halls, and then before he knew it, it was it became a big like political issue, right? It's oftentimes the party that's not in power that suddenly puts pressure on, but it's because of a partisan issue. But it was not a partisan thing for him at that time. And I think he, he's, as you've seen, if you follow him, he's not afraid of taking people on within his party or outside his party. I mean, his party's mm-hmm. done everything yep. they can't stop, and they've been unsuccessful. So I think that should encourage people that he's that he is resilient and he's not going to be influenced by people unless they're unless they're moving in the direction that he wants to be moving. It's it's so refreshing to hear that there's actually someone who's been elected to office who has the very vision that you know I've had in my show is is basically saying you know screw the uh, the the labels whether it's a big R or a big L next to your name like all that matters is that you're able to actually convey the the values that we have the principles we have to a larger audience than you would have been able to otherwise and I mean for for all the the, the flack that people like you know uh, Rand Paul get. It's like, yeah, you know, he, yes, he he has to say nice things to Trump, but look at what he's been able to accomplish along the way. I mean, helping get rid of the individual mandate for Obamacare. Um, you know, Paul's been instrumental in trying to get in Trump's ear to get us out of these foreign wars. I mean, tr- the, the fact that Rand Paul is able to have such an influence on our politics as a Republican is, is you know, one example of people actually doing what, you know, we, we always hypothesize we can do as libertarians. They're actually doing it. And and Justin is, is again, another phenomenal example. Um, so, I mean, with that, I... I would love to see him run as, you know, either for president or, as you mentioned, even for senator or governor or something, because Justin obviously has the the drive that we so desperately need in the liberty movement to actually advance our principles forward. So to hear that he he is not afraid of uh, of being told no or you can't do it, that's, I know, re- uh, very reassuring for myself to hear, but I'm sure for my audience to hear as well. Yeah, well, I, it's interesting. He's never lost an election. And so, and despite <laughs> people... I mean, he actually had a primary challenge here with a candidate who was funded with, I think, almost a million dollars. He was outspent. Uh, he outspent uh, Justin. Uh, he had the Chamber of Commerce. He had Right to Life. He had the NRA. He had, um, let's see, he had pretty much every lobbyist and other, every interest group that, if you're Republican, you need to have on your side to win. Uh, and that guy still lost by like 10 points to Justin. Uh, and they was calling, you know, Justin the ter- you know, Al-Qaeda's best friend and all the yeah. sorts of things, you know, because... Because he had a policy of not, you know, a non-interventionist policy, but it didn't matter. And and I think, I think that should be. I think he can dis, he can explain. Uh, he can reach across the aisle and he can explain his positions that people find, uh, find that they agree with, even though they may not be uh, Republicans or whatever. And so he gets a tremendous amount of crossover votes when he was in the state house. He had the Democrats would actually voice vote his amendments through all the time. And most Republicans, they don't, they wouldn't even listen to. So he can work across the aisle uh, because he's just, if he has a goal that works with Democrats, like criminal justice reform or uh, the privacy concerns or whether it, or war, of course, that usually depends on who the president is. Uh, but he's he's able to do it. And I think that's because he's not partisan. He doesn't go around saying Democrats are this or that or the other thing because the parties are kind of the same in many ways. <laughs> to say the least. And that's one thing that's always re- uh, very refreshing to see from Justin's Twitter or his Facebook is that he never calls out the party. He always calls out the, the policy that he has issue with and he critiques it from that perspective. So, uh, you know, whatever whatever the, the folks up in Michigan's third district ha- are doing up there to keep a guy like him in Congress, God bless y'all because you're, you're doing it right. Um, so, I mean, with that, Eric, we are at the point, unfortunately, uh, we do have to say goodbye. So, if you could leave um, some parting words of wisdom to my audience, uh, number one, but also number two, make sure you can uh, tell my, my folks here at the Brian Nichols Show audience where they can find you on social media and also uh, can learn more about The Paradox Show. Well, you can go to uh, any podcast player. will get The Paradox. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. Uh, you can go to theparadox.com. That's the same spelling. Uh, there you can find the show notes. You can find the list of all the uh, of all the episodes I've done. I've just finished episode 45. And so there's almost for sure uh, – there's actually an interview with Justin, not surprisingly, <laughs> but uh, where we talk <laughs> about Star that. Trek and Star Wars. Uh, but uh, we also – but 
broadening sort of topic of medicine you might find interesting, I think there'll be something there for anybody. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at The Paradox Show. Um, you can also find me at Eric L. Larson. Unfortunately, too many Eric Larsons in the world. Uh, and then I think, you know, when it comes to when it comes to liberty and when it, I, I used to be very pessimistic because you see the, gro- the, the growth of Leviathan. But I think this last year, especially the last even just couple of weeks and months, have really encouraged me because I think people are finding solutions and workarounds to a system that is maybe broken to provide high value. And and I think things are better than we think they are. And I think we have reason to be optimistic. Uh, I've got a guy like Justin who's working for us. We've got people, docs, who are all the time innovating and people who are non-physicians also innovating in medicine that is making things better. And I think, you know, as the, uh, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, the good guys win in the end, Mordor doesn't win. And so I think that's the way to live life. And I think, I think things are better. And I, I hope that people don't despair. <laughs> don't we all? And, and I must say, um, Star Wars and Star Trek episode sounds fascinating. I actually just shared an episode uh, shared by Generation Tech today on YouTube. And uh, the, the video topic was, um, does Star Wars have a libertarian slant? Very interesting video. So if folks are, are libertarian and big fans of Star Wars, which Eric, I'm assuming you are, um, definitely go ahead and check that video. It was very interesting. It's over on my, uh, my social media there at the Brian Nichols Show. Um, but Eric, thank you so much again for joining us today. I uh, really do appreciate you taking some time. A, a very busy schedule for a doctor. Um, but, uh, but with that, um, folks, please go and support Eric over at the Paradox Show. Um, also, go ahead and again, follow him on social media. Share his episodes uh, with your family and friends. Help show them a real libertarian perspective to healthcare. Uh, so with that, also, folks, please, if you're uh, if you're enjoying what you, you're getting here from the Brian Nichols Show, I, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, share with family and friends. Um, go over to iTunes. Please leave a review. That's how it helps boost the Brian Nichols Show up in the rankings. Uh, gets more traction there with the, uh, the iTunes algorithms. Uh, but also, if you could share the episode uh, on uh, at least three people's walls on, on Facebook, on Twitter, somewhere. That's what I'm asking you guys, your mission for this week. Share today's episode with at least three people. Um, and if you, if you could folks, if you haven't already, uh, if you're interested in being a Patreon subscriber, I would greatly appreciate it. It's how we keep the lights on here at the Brian Nichols show and honestly helps us keep on producing this content that you guys all have come to love and enjoy. Uh, and, and to wrap up folks, as always, follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. But with that, Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Eric Larson. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.